Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Mind Whisperer on blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Michael Gordon. Welcome to the program for Tuesday, October the 8th, 2013. Topic of today's show is about addiction and self-destruction. We'll get right into that topic in just a moment. Welcome if you're listening live and if you're listening to the show through iTunes uh, download or through Blog Talk Radio. All the uh, programs are, of course, archived here on the site. And you just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the mind whisperer. Uh, you can also go to our Facebook page, which is forward slash the mind whisperer, and uh, our Twitter account. Um, all of these links are uh, on our homepage here on blogtalkradio.com. So welcome to the program. It's a very uh, important topic that we're addressing today. And I want to address it uh, as I do many of the topics that I do on the program as an aspect of our relationship with ourselves and how we develop psychologically, physiologically into the person that we are in adulthood and what some of the contributing factors are that shape uh, the drivers for addiction and self-destructive behavior. So let's look at uh, let's look at addiction to begin with. And why have I framed today's talk uh, as self-destruction um, is not rebellion? So we have to always look at the origins of any what we call stress reducing stress reduction seeking behaviors or attention reduction seeking behaviors and from my uh perspective my training is in a therapy called EMDR which is a eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that's a long-winded title but essentially what it does is it looks at stress in our system and how we are designed to respond to stress and your brain doesn't distinguish between whether it's an immediate stress or historical stress. So this creates a lot of problems for us because if we have unresolved incidents from our past, let's say that there are uh, compounded uh, early traumas in, the, in our environment, and not even necessarily um, emotional, psychological traumas related to our immediate family or abuse, but they could just be medical traumas, you know, early childhood um, issues, et cetera, et cetera. But if we had an alcoholic parent or, you know, a neglectful parent or any shaming experiences and a sense of abandonment early on, those can really profoundly uh, wire in at an early age when we are adapting to the world and what conclusions we make about the world. And then, of course, we become an unfolding uh, process uh, 
and our lives become complicated and our sense of who we are becomes complicated by that distorted sense of self. And we prove it to ourselves. We get into dysfunctional relationships. And the, the bottom line here is that the way that we adapt to those stresses, which is at an early age particularly that we're interested in today, um, that shape our sense of what's possible and how the world is to us and where our place is in the world. Um, and so uh, addiction becomes a way that we try and in a sort of very direct and almost primitive way try and address or reduce that stress. Because again, your system is responding as if it's still a young person and very overwhelmed. And then of course you become an adult and you are engaging in behaviors which um, don't actually resolve the problem. So it makes you feel powerless and still stuck like a child. This is where people in therapy really get some uh, relief to understand what's going on. I did a workshop at a uh, an AA, what they call Roundup, which is a big conference. And I had about 40 people in the workshop. And I was doing a workshop on mindfulness and addiction and, and teaching meditation as a way of an alternate way of resolving that stress. Of course, you can't get to any sort of therapeutic um, treatment or resolution in a, in a group setting like that in, in the way that I was teaching it, um, just as a short program. But you can help people shift and get more of an internal sense of control over their physiological state through meditation. But the first thing I said is, you know, much to the... Uh, shock of the group assembled there was that alcohol is not really your problem. And there was a lot of murmuring and edginess because, of course, Alcoholics Anonymous is focused on alcohol being the problem, which it is on the surface. But really what's going on, again, is that there's some driver to, to um, escape a state, a mind-body state, and a sense of being trapped in that state and wanting to avoid it, which is a natural response. If you're cornered, any animal will either freeze up or fight back or try and run away. And those are the behaviors that manifest um, when we have unresolved issues in our past and, and everything that happens to us in the present becomes a mirror of those past uh, experiences as if they're still happening. So we have an impulse to try and protect ourselves from that internal stress and driver. And let's just take an example. It may be, uh, well, predominantly what it is, it is shame. So something triggers a feeling of shame from, again, some distortion or, or a real incident that uh, somebody did shame us, and that causes a distorted idea about ourselves. And so you have this pervasive sense of shame. You don't want to feel it. So you want to numb out through alcohol or through drugs. The problem is, is that you reach to that substance with a legitimate aim, but the problem is, is that the substance and the use the, the the usage of that substance and the lifestyle that goes with it um, does not ultimately lead to uh, resolution because if you wake up with a hangover or you spend all your money on cocaine or other drugs or your health falls apart or you become isolated from your family and friends or you lose your job, et cetera, et cetera. So now you're right back to where you started in shame. And of course, what that does is drive you to want to use and escape the shame. So you're in this horrible, vicious cycle. Now, why why have I framed today's discussion in terms of self-destruction? Well, if we go back to some of those originating incidents, 
Now remember, this doesn't have to be gross neglect or um, horrific abuse. We know now that even parental stress has a genetic effect on uh, children. That means that as your body and your neural pathways and your physiology, that's your your, your um, hormonal uh, stress axis of all those uh, you know, biochemicals that, that are related to our experience and how we adapt to the world, as that's all adapting and developing, um, it can it can be uh, altered or affected by just by picking up on the stress of what's going on from our parents. And then, of course, as you escalate levels of um, abandonment or neglect or mistreatment, of course, that goes up exponentially and the stress stays in the system. So one way of adapting, because our early environment and is, is and our healthy development is predicated on feeling safe and secure, and our parents are supposed to provide that for us, or our early caregivers. And if that's not present, then we have this generalized sense that we're not worth it, or it's not possible for us, et cetera, et cetera. Now this creates a big problem because um, now we have this distorted sense of our place in the world, and this is where the rebe the, the false or fantasy um, rebel model comes in. We take our uh, perceived sense of powerlessness or a real sense of powerlessness in the world and the lack of leadership and security and control from the parents that are supposed to be there for us. And we, um, instead of having an outlet for that um, resolution or justice, we turn it inwards. But to us, it appears like we're fighting the world. We're getting back at the world. We're taking some control. And of course, that releases a whole uh, rush of chemicals into our system as well adrenal cortisol complex, uh, acetylcholine, et cetera, et cetera. So we get this flush of uh, excitation in our system, and it gives us a hit. You know, when you get angry at somebody, it creates a tremendous rush of, uh, of feeling and uh, surges your body with those neurohormones. So you get a high off of it temporarily. So that, unfortunately, does not match up with um, the reality in terms of the actual measurable result that you get. In other words, just because you feel like you're getting angry doesn't mean you're resolving a situation. You just feel like you're standing up for yourself, but it doesn't necessarily lead to conclusive action or results. Now, when you're angry, having a tantrum as a kid, for example, stamping your feet and screaming in the supermarket, um, it's not, your parents hopefully will teach you that's not the greatest strategy. They, it's, it's a very uh, primitive and early way of signaling you're in distress, uh, but it's not very conscious and it's not very uh, evolved in terms of getting what you want. So you can see that this seeming um, uh, me against the world and um, you know screw everybody else and I'm just going to get high or use and drop out of the world, which is, has a sort of an anti-establishment um, kind of characteristic to it. Absolutely, you know, in the sense that um, that you aren't going to let yourself be uh, brought down by the stress of the world, etc. But the problem is, going back to the addiction model, it doesn't lead to any change. In fact, what it does is it, it only ensures that you that you are now, because of having gone through 
um, the cycle of using and coming off of the substance, you go back into the, the shame feeling. So it actually has a rebound effect and makes you feel even more sense of pronounced uh, powerlessness and shame in the world. So you can see how uh, it sets us up. Um, now, what's interesting here, of course, you know, the, the whole cycle of addiction is its own problem because it has a physiological component. And I could get into great length about that, but the mechanism is very much the same. And uh, I'll explain it by way of a, a very um, groundbreaking and um, game-changing um, believe she's a molecular biologist. Um, actually, what her real title is, I believe, is is a uh, pharmacologist, biological pharmacologist. I can't remember the exact title. Her name is Candace Pert, and she was featured in the sort of alternate science film, um, What the Bleep Do We Know? But she's a very credible scientist, and she's she, her work led to the discovery of uh, endorphins in the body because they were actually looking for a way to um, the, the body responds to uh, a cure for um, opiate addiction, particularly heroin. And so her her question was, well, if the body's going to re respond to some external or what they call exogenous substance that will um, help it adapt and get off of the dependency on this opiate or opioid, then there must be a naturally occurring or endogenous opioid in the body. And of course, they ended up um, finding that the body produces endorphins. And the problem is, is when you start using an, an external um, opiate like heroin, your body stops producing uh, um, the endorphins um, because you're supplying an, the, the same kind of effect with an external substance. And it actually stops producing, uh, turns off receptor sites for your internal endorphins. And it builds receptor sites that are uh, fit for the external substance. And the pro this is why when people quit and go cold turkey off of heroin, for example, um, they have such excruciating uh, withdrawal symptoms because your body has shut off, you know, has an incredible drop off of all of its natural analgesic effect or pain relieving effect. And because the endorphins have been on hiatus because something else has been feeding the system, when that other substance is gone, your body has no natural protection against any sensation whatsoever, not necessarily even pain. So those going through a opiate withdrawal, you know, experience, you know, an incredible discomfort, you know, from cramping to itching to, you know, pins and needles to aches and, and um, anything that your body would normally mask or hold at bay, you are experiencing as if it's a full-blown systemic injury. Now, interestingly enough, the same thing can happen in uh, heartbreak. So we get a, um, set up with our dopamine response, which is our, our well-being, pleasure-induced uh, uh, hormone in the body, in the brain, in the body, and around pleasurable experiences. So when we are bonded and engaged with another person, we feel a sense of connectedness and pleasure. You could feel it with chocolate. You could feel it with cocaine. You, um, a lot of any kind of behavior reward cycle you get into can create a kind of dependency and on that uh, releasing dopamine in the brain. 
And you can actually become what's called dopamine uh, deficient. So if you become uh, dopamine addicted in, in a sense to or dependent on gambling or shopping or sex or pornography, and all of a sudden you take away that external reward or the anticipation of getting that reward, then you um, then you no longer are producing dopamine for natural, um, you know, sort of general positive experiences, things that otherwise would have brought you um, simple pleasure and well-being. So again, you can see how this, if you looked on a graph, this spike of uh, sort of false empowerment that comes with using and being a rebel and, um, you know, going out on a Saturday night and getting blasted, uh, and then Monday morning reality hits that you still have a job to go to, and now you're hungover, and uh, you haven't changed your circumstances. So it actually exacerbates the situation. It makes more evidence that you are really not in, in control. And of course, this goes back to associations of our childhood, where you have a tantrum, but you're still the child, and the parent hasn't gotten why you had the tantrum, and you feel abandoned and neglected. So the way out, of course, is to heal this and to find out what the roots are of this sense of disempowerment and where we um, have internalized these distortions to correct those old experiences and, and, and uh, resolve them um, as, as thoroughly as we can and then come back to the present without that generalized sense of uh, disconnectedness and, and really self, self-imposed um, self-destructive behavior um, and certainly not the need to avoid uh, that major stress that's still hold, held in our system. And without that there anymore, it allows us to come back to reality and actually collect, connect to gratitude and all these principles that are there in recovery programs that otherwise don't have a great success rate because if you just tell someone, stop using alcohol and be grateful, it doesn't work because there's a reason to be using alcohol. Until you until you neutralize that trigger or whatever that driver is uh, to avoid feeling shame or um, that they don't have a reason to live, etc., then all the positive affirmation in the world will not lift them out of that uh, deeply rooted uh, belief or distortion. Well, there's quite a powerful redux on the whole addiction cycle and how our mind-body state sort of reflects past historical uh, issues from our childhood and how that can create this bubble of um, defiance of the world. But what it really uh, ends up being is just more self-destructive behavior and driving us further down, which of course fuels the addiction cycle even even worse. So... In the end, what we have to repair is our self-worth. We have to start with our self-worth, find out what the historical roots are of the damage to our and, and the, the mistake that somehow our self-worth isn't whole and intact, that it was something that was broken from the beginning. And once we begin to heal that, the coming back to the present and our future outlook can really significantly improve, of course, with the help of uh, taking positive steps to reframe our reality, and that means gratitude, it means humility, it means vulnerability, and, and developing all of those natural skills to feel engaged again and, and see our reality uh, and live our reality differently than 
everything that's happened up until now. And that's the great um, gift of recovery, that when people do successfully get through recovery, they're able to let go, let go of what's been and recreate themselves. And that's the, uh, the power that the human consciousness enables us uh, at any time to do. Well, thank you so much for listening today. I hope this has been elucidating for you. I always enjoy bringing this uh, content to you in as much depth uh, as I can in this reduced format. Um, and as I say, the show is, a, is, is in progress and we're expanding our listenership. And with your help, um, there is a donation button on our Facebook page. I really encourage you to go there. Any amount, you know, even a, a dollar makes a difference to helping the show continue. And uh, we look forward to bringing you some some guests eventually on the program as we uh, expand our studio capability here. But in the meantime, I'm happy to give you these sort of fireside chats and these short little presentations uh, on on these wide-ranging topics. And, and anytime you can, of course, um, make suggestions on what you'd like to hear on the show, um, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to come and uh, visit your location your town, your city, uh, give a talk. You, I can even uh, host the program from your community with the wonder of uh, mobile technology and the internet. Uh, I can podcast from anywhere in the world. In the meantime, my name is Michael Gordon. It's been my honor to be your uh, host today on the show, and we'll see you next time on The Mind Whisperer. Be well. <laughs>